All right. Want to go ahead and read the thing? Every Christmas Eve, the afternoon Wellington to Auckland express train slows as it enters the Wangehu River Gorge. It comes to a complete halt halfway over Bridge 136, where the driver of the train steps out of the engine cab. Descending to the track, holding tightly to the railing, he cocks his arm back and hurls a bouquet of flowers, complete with a stiff white card over the edge of the bridge. From behind him, passengers can see the bright colors of the hothouse blooms and the stark white of the card as they fall together in the black water below. They remain visible for a heartbeat before the river sweeps them away into the gathering evening. Then the driver, his job complete, climbs back up into the cab and releases the brake, and the express train's journey resumes. The abrupt stop, the unremarkable bridge, and the driver's bouquet toss may seem strange to a visitor aboard the train, but the locals aboard will recognize the yearly bouquet as neither a Christmas gesture nor an offering to the river. It's a memorial, and it comes from this express train to a lost one across the span of 70 years. The train moves away across the valley, and the flowers float south on the shallow water. As the bouquet becomes waterlogged and begins to sink, its card offers up a printed message to the twilight sky. In memory of all who died at Tungiwai on Christmas Eve, 1953. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1953 Tungiwai Disaster. Thank you very much. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Express Train Safety Analyst for Relative Disasters Public Transit. And I'm her brother Greg, Unbreakable Bridge Designer for the Relative Disasters Engineering Corporation. Ah, thank you so much for that story, Greg. The yeah. Tungiwai disaster is three disasters in one, uh, so it might be our longest episode ever. It is a volcano, okay, a bridge collapse, okay, and a train crash. Uh, okay, it's uh, like the Rube Goldberg contraption of disasters. <laughs> of disasters. It's just Not the great. timing is really, really unfortunate. Uh. Okay. Our main sources for this episode are the official Ministry of Transportation inquiry by the New Zealand government into the Tungiwai disaster. There are two digital collections that I looked at also, the Christchurch City Libraries collection on the Tungiwai disaster yep. and the digital collection on New Zealand history, which is also a government website. Okay. And finally, this is a listener suggestion from our Instagram messages from Kelsey. Thank you, Kelsey. I would not have come across this on my own, so Thank you, I appreciate Kelsey. it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I thought we'd begin with the volcano since uh, sure. you know I love a stratovolcano. I do. Uh, New Zealand is on the ring of fire. Yeah. I guess I don't really think of it as a major volcano place, but it is extremely active, earthquakes and volcanoes. Mount Ruapehu is one of the largest and most active volcanoes in New Zealand. It's on the North Island. Okay. Uh, it's very tall. It has ski resorts and glaciers. So it's a big guy with this incredibly deep, active crater. Oh, okay. Yep, that would make sense. 
I don't know that this lake has a name. <laughs> okay. It's just called Crater Lake, and sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. Okay. Uh, however, the name Ruapehu means exploding pit or exploding noise in Maori, which uh, suggests that this has been going on for some time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real drama queen of a mountain. <laughs> in March of 1945, it erupted again. And it had this kind of not super dramatic eruption. It was like a lot of ash. And it okay. was one of those kind of slow, long-term eruptions. Okay. So not one of those like, you know, piling explosion upon explosion, but just sort of blip, 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 blip kind of eruption. Yeah, it wasn't Krakatoa. It was sure. just like grumbling well, and steaming for Very a long few time. things are. I mean, let's be fair. <laughs> it's probably better for us, uh, the human race. That yes. There are not many Krakatoas going off all the time. Yep. Uh, so this is not Krakatoa, but it does kind of grumble to itself kind of throughout 1945. This kind of explosive phase lasts, I think, from December until early January 1946. Okay. And what we end up with is a crater about a thousand feet deep and just a ton of ash and debris kind of rimming Crater Lake. Hmm. Okay. Which then proceeds to fill up with water. Sure, like you do. You wouldn't think that would be a problem, <laughs> um, seeing as <laughs> there are glaciers and, like, it's already a watershed. Sure, sure, sure. However, this kind of dam of the new ash means yeah. that it, the lake is just really deep. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Deeper than usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By September of 1952... The lake is about 35 feet below the rim of the crater. Whoa. By August of 1953, it's right up at the top. Yeah, that's not great. It's not great. We don't love it. <laughs> that's, that's not what you want a crater lake to be doing. But it doesn't seem like it caused a ton of concern. Sure. I mean, why would you be worried about something like that, right? That's probably fine. I mean, there is still... Like, tourists were still boating around. <laughs> they were taking pictures. <laughs> sure! It's all good. It's yeah. all good. Yeah, sounds fine. So it kind of deepens until the end of 1953. Okay. On December 24th, yep. Christmas Eve, the wall of ash breaks apart. And what happens is there are these ice caves that are developing on the sides. And normally that would form like a regular outlet. Okay. And water would kind of drain away through these caves. Okay. That's not what happens. I guess because the water is warmer because it's volcano fed. <laughs> like there is yeah. still there's still lava circulating underneath. So the water is a little too warm. Something lets go in the ice, and this wall of frozen ash, which is holding it in, breaks apart. Mm, it's that doesn't sound good. No, it's really not. It's yeah. really not. Okay. This massive flood pours into the Wangaehu Gorge, which is just below. And it's kind of following the course of a glacier. Ugh. So you've got the water moving over the glacier, yep. which starts breaking up. Obviously, there's a lot of water in a glacier. With this warmer water cascading over the top, you're adding water, and then it hits the slope. Mount Ruapehu is a forested mountain. Mm. So immediately it's picking up snow. Yep. And then it's also picking up trees, mud, mm. uh, soil, boulders, basically everything 
that is not bedrock is getting picked up by this massive six meter high wall of water. Yeah. Okay. And within a very short time, it forms what's called a lahar. Ooh. Okay. That's not a term I've ever heard before. It's a good one to know if you're into worrying about things that are not likely to happen. (laughs) I am. So this is right in your wheelhouse. It is forming the view outside my wheelhouse. (laughs) So a lahar is a type of mud flow, basically, that occurs in volcanic areas. Okay. Lahars are usually formed in this exact way by collapsing a crater wall or by eruptions. Okay. But what they're known for is picking up massive quantities of sand and silt and rock. Sure. Yep. So because they're so full of debris, it almost becomes not water at all. It's like a sliding wall of mud. It's incredibly heavy and incredibly powerful. Mm. People describe it as like a slurry. Yeah. Like it's not the kind of water you can swim in or float no. in. No. Once a lahar gains momentum, which it usually does because it is coming down the side of a mountain, yeah. it can pick things up and move them across even flat areas with incredible momentum. Sure. Yeah. So that's what we have coming down the Wangaihu Gorge. Okay. So the Wangaihu River Gorge does not run in a straight line. Okay. It takes a right angle bend above a railroad bridge. Oh. And it narrows. Okay. Uh, this railroad is the New Zealand main trunk, which is the main railway line running yep. from Auckland to Wellington. It is a very busy railway for freight and passengers. Yep. Bridge 136 is one of dozens of little bridges on the line. It's right outside the town of Tongiwai, which is about 250 kilometers from Wellington. It's a railroad track laid onto concrete piers. Okay. Okay. So it's not a fancy bridge. Sure. And in strengthening the bridge, the engineers decided to put possibly too many piers into this bridge. Okay. So it's very well supported, but okay. it also doesn't have a lot of space for a flood to move through. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? Yep, that makes sense. So Mm. even a water flood would have trouble getting through this once it started picking up debris. A lahar is not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, so around 1010 or 1015, the lahar reaches the Tongiwei Bridge. And by now, it's this just wave of mud. Uh, Mud that is also packed with sand and boulders. Trees. You Mm -hmm. name it. Don't like it. This bridge does not have a chance. No. Three of the five piers are smashed. Okay. One section of the bridge falls into the water. The remaining parts of the bridge are not supported. Okay. So if you're standing on one end of the bridge and you can't see the section that has fallen into the water, the bridge may look intact. It is not because half the structures are kicked out from underneath it. Uh, Okay. Obviously... People who are trying to drive around in the area notice that the lahar passes. It makes a massive noise. Obviously, this bridge gets washed out. There's also a road bridge close by. Okay. And the mud comes up over the bridge. It doesn't wipe it away, but it makes it impassable. So motorists have stopped on both sides of the bridge. Okay. A witness named Cyril Ellis happened to be passing the bridge as it was breaking up. This is what he saw. Quote, Then I saw the train coming down towards the railway bridge. There was just nothing there. I had to try and stop it. I grabbed my torch, I always carried a five-cell torch, and jumped over the fence. I got onto the middle of the track and waved the torch until the train was right on top of me. How the hell I got off the track, I'll never know. End quote. So what Cyril Ellis has seen 
is this bridge that is ruined and the express train barreling down 40 miles an hour onto the bridge. It is likely that the driver and the fireman saw him and heard him about 200 feet ahead of the bridge because they hit the brakes and shut down steam to the engine before they would have been able to see the extent of the damage. Okay. This train was packed. Uh, It's an express train. It's a holiday night. No. Yeah. It's full of people. It's full of freight. Okay. Uh, This is a steam engine pulling nine passenger carriages and two vans, one for guards and one for the express mail. I had to discuss this with our railway consultant, Ah, our dad. Yes. Yes. Famous railway (laughs) consultant. None of these terms made sense to me. I was like, who is the driver of the train? Why are they calling this person a driver? Why is this a van? Yeah, what is a van? Right. And he told me that New Zealand uses British train terms. Okay. So the engine driver in New Zealand is what we would call an engineer. Passenger carriages are passenger cars, and a van is a freight car. Okay. There are 285 people aboard. That includes first and second class passengers, mm. as well as the train's guards. Uh, two postal inspectors traveling with the mail, and the driver and the fireman who were up front in the cab. Okay. Because it was Christmas Eve, a lot of the passengers were traveling for the holidays, but people were also on their way to see Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, who had just landed in Auckland to begin her first Commonwealth tour. She just got coronated. She went to visit her countries. I think she had landed like the 23rd the day before. Okay. So at 10.21 p.m., the express travels onto this bridge. Uh, Again, this is Cyril Ellis, the witness. Quote, The train went straight on over the bridge. Halfway across, the engine simply nosedived off the southern bank and seemed to go with a bellowing splash nearly against the opposite bank. The first carriage went with it. You never heard such a noise. The second carriage appeared to stand up on end, and with the weight of the carriages behind it, it was catapulted into the air. The three carriages following broke into three separate parts. They hit the water, and I could see them floating down the river, with their lights still on. After they had traveled about 40 yards, they disappeared, and I no longer saw their lights. End quote. Uh, Which I have to imagine was unbelievably horrible to see. Yeah. Just train carriages floating away with lights on. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so Cyril Ellis, who has not had enough adventure tonight. Sure climbs onto the sixth car, which is teetering on the edge at a 45-degree angle. The guard inside is telling people to stay in their seats. Cyril has seen this from the outside, and he knows that this carriage is about to fall in the river. So he starts yelling at people to evacuate the car. Okay. They are unable to get anybody out before the coupling snaps and the carriage falls into the river with everybody on it. Okay. So Cyril Ellis who is still not deterred, <laughs> yeah. breaks a window. Um, he and the guard, William Inglis, and a passenger named John Holman, managed to get all the passengers, except for one, out through the broken windows and onto the side of the carriage. Okay. Now, by this time, the force of the lahar is beginning to fade. It's sure. beginning to pass. Sure. So the water is dropping. Okay. And the survivors are able to get help from the shore and form a human chain. Okay. And they're able to kind of get into the shallower water and get out of the river. Okay. Okay. Passengers from the other carriages in the river were really struggling because they've been swept further downstream. Yeah. And because those carriages are rolling and sinking at the same time, Mm -hmm. 
it's really horrible because this is not water. You can't yeah. like break a window and swim out. Yeah. This is mud, rocks, boulders, and everything's tumbling down. It's getting taken away in a landslide, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's more like a mud avalanche yeah. than a flood. Yeah, definitely. Ugh. So by this time, people are coming to help. Soldiers from the army camp mm. at Wairua are helping from the shore. But the rescue is really, really difficult. It's the middle of the night. And even though the waters are beginning to come down, it's still full of debris. And it's still flowing with enough force to knock people over. Mm. Witnesses from the night talk about how dirty people got. They're just covered in oil and grease and dirt and sure, mud. Sure, Which sounds... Awful. Both uncomfortable and horrifying. Well, and it's also you know, debilitating when you're trying to rescue people. There's no way to haul people through sludge like that, you know? Absolutely. And before long, they realize they're not pulling live people out of the water. Sure. Yep. And it becomes a body recovery operation. The train was carrying 285 people. 134 of them survived this experience and 151 die. Most of those are drownings or smotherings. Yeah. So because... The brakes were hit 200 yards from the bridge. The last three carriages actually stop and are able to reverse off the bridge without any harm. 20 bodies are never recovered, and it is thought that they washed out to sea. Because this happens on a holiday, there's no newspaper right away, and there's a delay in figuring out exactly who is alive and who is no longer alive. Sure. So the people who are waiting at the station... On the other end of this train line for the express train, they don't have any news until days later. Mm. The names of the people who survived and the people who didn't. So the first detailed news of what happened was actually a radio broadcast. Uh, The prime minister of New Zealand, Sydney Holland, goes out to Wairua and broadcasts from there. I can't remember if I told you Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said she was on her first tour. So the first thing Queen Elizabeth has to do when she makes her Christmas broadcast is to add a message of sympathy for the people who had died in the Tangiwai disaster. Sure. Quote, last Christmas, I spoke to you from England. This year, I am doing so from New Zealand. Auckland, which I reached only two days ago, is, I suppose, as far as any city in the world from London. And I have traveled some thousands of miles through many changing seasons and climates on my voyage here. And now I want to say something to my people in New Zealand. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai, which will have brought tragedy into many homes and sorrow into all upon this Christmas day. I know there is no one in New Zealand, and indeed throughout the Commonwealth, who will not join with my husband and me in sending all those who mourn a message of sympathy in their loss. I pray that they and all who have been injured may be comforted and strengthened. End quote. So within the next few days, there was a mass funeral for several victims who were not identified. Many of those were later identified and reburied. Okay. Prince Philip attends the state funeral. Cyril Ellis and John Holman were awarded the George Medal, which is a New Zealand honor for bravery. Yeah. So the government commissions an inquiry, obviously. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that the Lahar was completely responsible for the disaster and that Mount Rupehu was responsible for the Lahar. It's kind of considered an act of God. So there's no lawsuit. There's no (laughs) 
expose on how things could have been done differently. Right, right, right. It's just a, a it's just the worst possible look. Yeah. yeah, the Lahari hits the bridge after the train had left the Tangiwai station, mm. and there was absolutely no way that anyone could have warned them. Yeah, because you know, five minutes later, it was on the bridge. Yeah. Really, what Cyril Ellis did with the flashlight running down the track was the best warning that could have happened. Yeah. Also, the bridge was inspected regularly. Sure. It was completely up to par and normal. A train had crossed that bridge about three hours earlier. Everything was fine. Uh, yeah. Some later investigations suggested that the bridge had actually been weakened by an earlier mud flow in 1925. Okay. But that was not proven. I mean... Even if the bridge had been built the day before it, there's no such structure that can stand up to a lahar like that. There are ways to strengthen bridges yeah. against <laughs> but, against high water, flood, and sure, mudslides. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, this was just too big and too powerful yeah. to really be engineered against. Yeah. Another suggestion was that there had been a minor earthquake okay. that had possibly either created the flood in the first place that had weakened the crater wall and caused the flood okay. and at the same time weakened the bridge. But if there was an earthquake, it was so minor that it was not picked up by anyone in the area. So sure. the government ended up finding that it was basically an act of God. No one was responsible. Yeah. However, they were able to make recommendations for a new bridge. The new bridge was built with an early warning system okay. that was updated several times over the last half of the 20th century. Okay. And a similar lahar, not quite as powerful, but with the same origination and the same momentum. Okay. It was able to be predicted. The trains were stopped and... The bridge was inspected and tested before the train was allowed to cross. This was in 2007. Okay. So this bridge is still used. It's still part of the main train line between Wellington and Auckland. It is... I think this is kind of an area where the government takes life safety really seriously. Yeah. Due to this disaster. Sure. I mean, and you? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a... This is a famous disaster in New Zealand. Yeah. It is the eighth biggest railway disaster the world has seen. Mm. And it is the fifth worst disaster in New Zealand's recorded history in terms of death toll. Mm -hmm. So it made a big impression on the railway industry. And I think on New Zealanders in general, just being a holiday and people traveling for the holidays, yeah. it just made a huge impression on the kind of the national consciousness. It was a big story in the news, and I think a lot of what came out of it continues to help railway safety. Okay. All right, and that is the story of the Tungiwai disaster. I mean, it's just, the thing that strikes me is that it's such a big, crushing disaster that, mm -hmm. like you said, there really wasn't a way to prevent it. I mean, you could have reinforce the bridge but a lahar of that size weight and strength i mean i i can't see many structures standing up to that let alone one that's spanning a gorge carrying a train you know like yeah it's pretty what struck me most about this story was that it was just um incredibly unlucky yeah 
Yeah, yeah. You know, if the lahari had come through earlier, if it had come through during the day, yeah. or if the train had been a little slower. Yeah. You know, it's just incredibly bad luck. There's just nothing that could have been done. Yeah. There really isn't. You know, it's a horrific tragedy. Yeah. And it, you know, so many things had to happen sure. in order yeah. to make it as bad as it was. Yeah. Like you said, it was almost a Rube Goldbergian kind of setup. Yeah. Uh, which is not a comfort. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. I, it's it's fascinating in how, um, you know, we, we very seldom think about how natural disasters can kind of take on uh, a power that isn't normally ascribed to them. You know, you think earthquake, you know, like, okay, the house shakes, worst possible scenario, you know, the ground cracks open. But you don't think of mm -hmm. earthquake as like California falls into the ocean. You know what I mean? And and this is sort of the equivalent to that. It's like, okay, so they had a volcanic eruption, but the volcanic eruption wasn't terrible. No. And then they had just this this stack of thing upon thing upon thing that all had to happen exactly that way to end in this kind of tragedy. It's it's you know, there's no planning for that. There's no planning for that. There's no fixing that. There's nobody to blame after it's over. It's just mm -hmm. awful. That's just, it's just tragic in a way that is really hard to make sense of because there is no, you know, there's nothing you can do to, to prevent it. Mm -hmm. Well, early warning systems. Sure, early warning systems help. It would not have helped, I don't think, the express train. No. It would have given them maybe five minutes warning. If five minutes to slam on the brakes means five minutes to slam on the brakes. Yeah, but can trains stop in five minutes? Probably not, but they could have slowed so that maybe only the first couple cars went over. I don't know. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a choice between bad and worse at that point. I'm honestly astonished that as many people survived it as did. When I first saw what happened yeah i was convinced that everybody who fell in the river died, died. Oh, yeah. yep yep but there were some really remarkable rescue stories there was the the passengers who were able to get out of that one first class car that fell in the river yep. and a few people were able to get out of those leading cars uh, by smashing the windows and kind of climbing out sure very quickly it reminds me a little bit of the um the silver bridge collapse where it was just once once it started to go, there was just no stopping the, the whole thing from going in. It's, yeah, once uh, that little piece breaks. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. all over. Yeah, it's a lot like that. Uh, I hate a bridge collapse. Yeah, I I'm not a fan. don't like driving over them. <laughs> I don't like thinking about them. <laughs> and this is the worst. Uh, thanks, I hate it. You always say that. I'm sorry, it's good. It's It's an excellent... It's an excellent topic, but, you know, it's sad. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And we know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. 
We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Next disaster is, uh, it's not a natural disaster. It's, you could certainly make an argument that it's a man-made disaster, but Mm -hmm. if anything, it's a societal disaster. Ooh. Yeah. So, uh, in the next episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to be talking about the late 1800s Victorian England and British territories practice of baby farming. That sounds so wholesome. It's not. Cabbage patch? Storks? No. no? Kind of the exact opposite. No. Mm, I'm sorry. Okay. We'll see you next week.